Our message today is entitled, Who Do You Trust? Who do you trust? Is it a long list of people that you trust? Well, I think the answer to that question probably depends on trust for what? You know, when I go to the grocery store, I trust whoever is over there operating the grocery store to have groceries. They seem to be fairly trustworthy for that. Though there are some items that I like to get that they are kind of unreliable about, but still, I trust them. We trust people in varying degrees for different things. The question is, who do you trust? Who would you trust with your life? That is a shorter list, though, you know, every last one of us, I think, well, not maybe not, I don't know. Many of us this morning arrived here in a car that was driven by someone, and we maybe didn't notice that we were trusting them with our lives, but we were. Some of us maybe even have arrived on an airplane this week, and there we're a little more clear that we're trusting someone with our lives. But, you know, those guys that fly around, fly the airplanes they, and the airplanes themselves and all the people who fix the airplanes and the companies that run the airplanes, you know, they've demonstrated that they're actually more trustworthy with your life than whoever drove you over here this morning. But, you know, apart from, you know, airplane pilots and various other safety officials, we... Who do we trust with our lives? It's a short list. Who do we trust for our future? It's an important question. Now, we've been learning some things as we've gone through the book of Hebrews about trust. First of all, we've learned that God is good and God must be true to himself. And because of those two facts combined together, God is utterly trustworthy. If God is good and God is absolutely true to God, then he is also true to you and to be trusted utterly. And we've noticed that God has made some promises to people who trust him. He does this based on the sacrifice of Christ. Promises like this, constant access, perfect provision, resurrection to eternal life. You know, we often focus on the relatively trivial promises of God. In fact, we often focus on promises of God that weren't made to us, but to somebody else, but whatever. We often focus on the relatively trivial promises of God. These are the big promises. God says, because of the sacrifice of Christ, you can pray, and he will hear it. You can, 
at least figuratively, go into the very presence of God and not die. Even though you are not in your own life, by your, on your own, righteous and holy enough to stand there. But in Christ, you have standing, you have access, you are viewed by God in the grace of God, His unmerited favor on you. So when He sees you arriving in prayer, He is welcoming, not punishing. Constant access. He also promises to his children perfect provision. Jesus said it like this. You know, if God takes care of birds, surely he'll take care of you. And he says, you know, you fathers, you're not even really great people. You're, sinner. you're sinners, but you know how to take care of your children. When they ask for bread, you don't give them rocks. Don't you think God is even smarter than you when it comes to taking care of His children? So he says, on the basis of that argument, he says, so don't worry. <laughs> Has anyone worried this week about things like food, clothing, and shelter and other such worldly provisions? Uh, he says, don't worry. Your father knows that you need these things. He says in the book of Philippians, my God shall supply all your needs according to his wealth, his riches, in glory. That's kind of unconditional promise that God has made. That is a huge promise. That means what you need, He has given. That promise can be hard to trust sometimes, but it's true. And God is good even when we can't tell exactly how good He is by our own experience. How do we know He's good? Jesus showed up and died for our sins. That's how we know. God's promises to resurrection, to eternal life, a promise we look forward to and trust in. And so we trust God, and because we trust God, we learn to live like Jesus. We learn the, the very life of faith working through love. This does a lot of good and causes a lot of trouble. People don't know how to handle actually loving people who demonstrate the nature of God in their affairs. People who trust God can go through the trouble that it takes to show the love of God. They stick with Jesus. Well, I've decided to summarize these three things with the three expressions from the book of Hebrews, draw near, that's faith, Hold fast the confession of our hope. That's hope. Consider one another in order to stir up love and good deeds. That's love. That's the great trilogy of virtues in, from the Apostle Paul. Faith, hope, love. Trust God. Hope in His promises. 
And because of those, you can actually love one another. Well, today we come to the story of Moses in the book of Hebrews. And we're just going to read about half of it, if I can find it. Hebrews 11, verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child. In the translation we read earlier, a fine child. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, who gave him the name Moses, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. By faith, when he left Egypt... I'm sorry, by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. By faith, Moses. And now we're moving from Genesis in our review of Old Testament people of faith. We're moving from Genesis to Exodus, and we come to Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. So we might ask the question, whose faith are we talking about here? Well, I think we're talking about the faith of Moses' parents. Now, we, are, we notice that they hid him. For three months. Why did they do that? Do you remember the story? Why did they do that? Well, because Pharaoh was getting worried about the population explosion that was going on among the Hebrew people in Egypt, these, these people that he had enslaved. And now they were getting to be like uh, enough people that maybe one day they'll think of, you know, quitting or rebelling. Or So he was getting scared. And so he said, uh, We're going to stop the population explosion and maybe reverse it. So he says to the Hebrew midwives, he says, if a a boy is born, put him to death. If a girl is born, she can live. The Hebrew midwives, the Scripture says in Exodus chapter 1 toward the end, it says, something about them, they didn't do it. They didn't do it. And it gives a reason why they didn't do it. Why were they not afraid of Pharaoh? Because they were afraid. It says they feared the Lord. So they trusted a higher authority. And so they said, well, we've, uh, we can't do that. So they didn't do that. And Pharaoh said, hey, what's going on here? 
How come all these boys are still here? And they say, well, by the time we get there, they're already bored. These Hebrew women, <laughs> that's an argument he could buy. These Hebrew women. So he gives a new order. And he says, every Hebrew baby boy must be thrown into the river. Well, that's an interesting thing. That's an offering to some sort of Egyptian god, uh, throwing them in the river. But it's also, uh, well, uh, there's no more excuses. And it's in that context, the very next thing in the story is that text we read this morning where Moses' mother hides him for three months and then puts him in the river without killing him. They hid him by faith. She put him in the river by faith for two reasons, according to our text in the book of Hebrews. First, they saw, they saw, that's important. They saw something about Moses, that he was a beautiful child or a fine child. In one translation, it says a healthy child. It's a very interesting word <laughs> because the literal meaning of this word is fit for the city. <laughs> That's weird, isn't it? Fit for the city, like, uh, like they could see some sort of nobility in him, like he's going to be uh, important, a uh, citizen, not some shepherd, country boy, but fit for the city, sophisticated, important person. Now, I guess probably all moms and dads see something like that in their newborn sons and daughters, uh, but in any case, they saw that he was fit for the city, so they hit him. They couldn't kill him. And then it says this, they were not afraid of the king's edict. And I think the only way you can say that is you're extending what you see in the midwives into the mindset of Moses' parents, especially his mother, who is not afraid of the king's edict. She's not going to obey the king. Why? Because she fears the Lord above the king. Because she trusts God, not Pharaoh. She is no doubt in this somewhat rebellious act risking her own life to preserve the life of her son. She's trusting herself to the Lord. And how do we know? Because she does this and not that. By faith, 
his parents hid Moses. Then, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. When he had grown up is a link because that expression, it's megas genomenos, that's Greek. It, that's the exact expression used for when he had grown up here in Hebrews that is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was the Bible to all these Hebrews. So he uses that expression to tie this text to Exodus 2.11 where Moses is when he had grown up. It's like the, ver the last verse we read in Exodus. Verse 11, one day when Moses had grown up, same verse. So the writer of Hebrews is reminding all of his Hebrew readers of their Bible where Moses had grown up and what did he do? He looked at his people. He went out at his people. And he looked at their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew one of his people. Wait, Moses is Egyptian now. No, Moses is making a decision as he comes of age. He's decided something to refuse to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and to identify with the Hebrew people. So, how did he refuse? He identified with the Hebrews people. He saw the Hebrew people as his people. He knew where he was really from. And you remember the story, right? Well, he saw this guy beating up the Hebrew, and he beat up the guy to death. Then he had a problem. There were actually witnesses. There were people going around. And the next time, he, Moses went out among the people of Israel. They were saying, are you going to kill us like you killed that Egyptian? They were afraid of him. They weren't out there welcoming him as their new rebel leader. And he knew... Uh, oh, the word is out. So he ran away. He left. It's going to be interesting to fit that to story together with what we read here in Hebrews. By choosing, the writer of Hebrews says, he, he refuses by choosing. He refuses to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter by choosing to be mistreated with God's people rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He decided to give up the advantages of being Egyptian, and not just being Egyptian, but being an Egyptian prince. We read in Exodus 2.15, when Pharaoh heard of this matter, when Moses killed the Egyptian and then it got out, Pharaoh heard about it, he tried to kill Moses. 
My guess is Pharaoh didn't like Moses from the beginning, but that's a guess. This provided a good reason to get rid of Moses. Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian. Now, Moses is not done, of course, and we know the story of Moses. If we're Hebrews, we really know the story of Moses because Moses is the hero at the very top of the hero list in Israel. Moses is the redeemer. Well, he chose, he let go of the advantages of Egypt and his position in it. And the scripture here says he did so by faith. Now to us, we might read the story and we think, well, he did so from fear. He was afraid of Pharaoh. But when he chose departure from Egypt in alliance with Israel, he's choosing Israel and Israel's God. And here we read, he considered the reproach of Christ greater riches. How did Moses consider the reproach of Christ? He considered it greater riches than the wealth of Egypt. His identification with Israel is his claim on the Abrahamic promise. I should say promises. The nation, the land, the blessing of the nations. What's the blessing of the nations? Christ. In fact, all of these promises are delivered in Christ. And so when Moses claims Israel, Moses is exercising faith in those promises made by that God. Even if it's hard for us to spot the faith when we read the story. It might have been hard for Moses to spot that faith. What is this reproach of Christ Well, the reproach of Christ is the way in which God has delivered all the promises made to Abraham to all the people who trust in Christ. The reproach of Christ is the cross of Christ. The reproach of Christ is Christ's representing his people and bearing the reproach of the people to redeem the people. You see, Moses is a type of Christ. Moses, when he identifies with Israel and then later becomes the deliverer of Israel, he is the representative of Israel before Pharaoh, and so he bears Pharaoh's reproach. And the consequence is the redemption of God's people out of Egypt. It's an image, a type of Christ himself. You know the name Moses. It's quite a, it's a very interesting thing to study, the naming of Moses. Moses is named by Pharaoh's daughter. And she says when she takes him up 
she says, because I drew him out of the river, we're going to call him Moses. And Moses means not the person who was drawn out of the river, but the person who draws out. It's a very weird grammatical, textual, you know, it's a sort of participle, blah, blah, yeah, sorry. But it's the name Moses means the one who draws out. Who gave him that name? Not his own mother, who saw that he was a fine person. Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter, named him. God gets the last word, everyone. <laughs> Moses becomes the man who draws his people out of Egypt. Moses bears the reproach of his people. And Moses valued that over all the wealth in Egypt. Why? It says here, he was looking to the reward. He was looking to the reward. We've seen that idea of the reward in, in Hebrews at various points along the way. The encouragement that we would look to the reward. He was looking to the reward. He trusted himself to the promise of God. That is why. Now, between him, his, his departure into exile and his return, there's a lot of transforming going on in the life of Moses, right? We've left out a lot of the story, you know, his whole conversation with God in the burning bush. God calls him to go back to Egypt and get his people out. That, none of that's here in Hebrews. But all of that happened, and all of us know it. And so he's trusting, by the time he comes back, he's trusting God. He's looking to the reward. He sees the fear of God above the fear of Pharaoh. He trusts God. He doesn't trust the world. And so we read, by faith he left Egypt. Now, he left Egypt a couple of times. So I personally think this is about the exile, but we could make a case that it's about his ex about the exodus. Sometimes the faith of Moses is barely detectable. Like when he left Egypt the first time, I'm not sure I would have noticed it was by faith. But it was a decision. It was a decision to trust this and not that. To trust God and not Pharaoh. To trust the promised land, the promise of the nation, the promise of the blessing over the promise of worldly power and wealth. Here's the thing we might want to notice here. What's most significant about our faith is not how big or obvious it is. But what is its object? Who do you trust is more important than how much? 
you know, I don't know if you've noticed this, but in the Christian life, our, my faith meter is like on some kind of wave. So one day it's, you know, easy, absolute. And the next day I'm wondering if any of this is true. And it's all over the map. But when it comes right down to it, if you say, who do you trust for your eternal destiny before the living God? I have only one answer, the Lord Jesus Christ and his work of the cross. And it's not about how big or strong or whatever. It's not about the quality of my faith. It's about the object of my faith because I am not saved by the strength of my faith. I am not saved by my faith at all. I am saved by what Christ did, not anything I do. I only receive it by trusting it. And so we see this in Moses, you know, when we're, he's described here as by faith, valuing the 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 reproach of Christ above the wealth of Egypt. And we think, man, I didn't see that when I read the story. But that was happening in the story. When he moved this way and not that way, he was trusting this and not that. He endured as one seeing the invisible one. Oh, this reminds me of the beginning of this chapter where faith is the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the exhibit of the unseen reality. Moses, when he decides for Israel and against Egypt, he's deciding to trust in the promise of God and not the promise of Pharaoh. He's deciding to trust, and so he makes God visible in this world. The evidence of things unseen is Moses' faith. That's true of this whole list, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. How do we know the goodness of God? Because these people trust it. And the ultimate example of it is Christ himself, who trusts himself entirely to the Father, all the way to dying when he wasn't dieable. He shouldn't die. He has no sin. But he dies in faith, trusting himself entirely to God. Now, here's what I want you to observe from all of this. You always operate by faith. There's no other way for a human being to operate, actually. And I mean a human being, I don't mean a Christian. All human beings always operate by faith. All the time. You can't do anything without believing something, without trusting something. Why do people invest their money in the markets? They trust in some sort of future promise. They might not be that sure, but they're trusting it when they put the money in. They decide 
this or that because they trust this or that. Everything, every decision you ever make is a move of faith. Or you wouldn't move. Every decision you make, everything you learn is an exercise of faith. When you act according to what you see is true. Or even your best guess of it. You are trusting yourself to that thing. To one degree or another, in one way or another. Moses sees that God is God and that his promises are made to Israel. He trusts God. How do we know? Because he goes with Israel and not Egypt. He doesn't trust Pharaoh. He trusts God. He doesn't trust the world, we might say. And he does trust God. We trust Christ. We act on the promises of Christ. We don't trust the promises slash threats of the world. And this is the underlying point here in the book of Hebrews where the Hebrew Christians were facing the, the prospect of uh, serious persecution. Here now the world is becoming, is promising bad things to them. And they say, maybe the thing to do is go with the world. Give in to the threat and thereby escape the threat. Well, if you do that, who do you trust? The world who's threatening you. You're trusting them to not carry out the threat just because you change your mind, for example. You're trusting that going with the world will provide safety to you. You're envisioning a future if you go this way. That's trust. You can't behave any other way than by whatever you trust. We act on the promises of Christ. We don't trust the promises of the world or the threats of the world. We come away from the world because we trust Him. We love the people who persecute us because we trust Him. We can endure any situation in this life because we know this life is not the whole, th the whole story. Because we know the promise of God of resurrection to eternal life. We trust this difficult circumstance because we have heard the promise of God that He is always providing for all of our needs. And so even when I suffer through some ordinary circumstance of life, some disease or hardship or, or de deprived status, poverty, even when I go through those things, I know, I know the promise of God that He is always providing for me, so I wouldn't do, be going through this if I didn't need it. If he wasn't providing something in it, by it, through it. So because I trust him, I become 
strong and free. Not in my own strength. I'm not, I'm not strong to endure illness. I'm not. How do I do it then? Because I know His promise. Even if I die from this illness, I'll be fine. I don't trust in the things of this world. I trust in God's provision. It changes every decision I make. So the question is very simple. Who do you trust? And you know, the biggest issue isn't, you know, how am I going to make it through the next few days? The biggest issue is how am I going to make it through forever? The biggest issue is what is God's attitude toward me? And how will this turn out on judgment day? When justice is realized, the question is, who do you trust? I think you have really just two options when it comes to the our eternal destiny or our standing before a righteous, holy God. I think you only have two options. You or Christ. You could come to God and you could say, like those guys do in the story and the parable in Matthew, didn't we do this in your name and this in your name and this in your name and this in your name? You have a long, old, big old long list. Didn't we do enough? And the Lord Christ, who's standing in judgment in the story at that point, says, ah, go away. I don't know you guys. They brought what they had. You can do that, or you can bring, well, Christ can bring you. You, the, it's a simple question. Who do you trust, you or him? I trust him. I trust him. You might have walked in here this morning and you didn't know that the question was that simple and it's never been quite clarified in exactly that way before. And all I have to say to you then is, well, then trust him. And that's all there is to that. You don't have to... Do a thing, although when you trust Him, what you do is probably going to change because what you trust determines what you do. And so, you know, I'm not too worried about what you're going to do or what you have done or what you might bring. It's not, none of that matters because Christ has done it on your behalf. And the promise of God is if you trust Him... He gives you all of these things. Constant access to the throne of grace. Perfect provision for every last one of your needs. Even when it seems like you're not getting provided for, you are getting provided for. And resurrection in the end to eternal life 
in fellowship with the living God by the Son in the Spirit. This doesn't seem like a hard choice to me. I can trust in that, what God has done, the love demonstrated by the cross of Christ, or I can bring whatever I can bring and trust that. I know enough about myself to know, well, that's not going to be adequate for someone who's holy and perfectly righteous. And I know enough about Him. The eternal Son made flesh who gave His life for my sake. I trust Him. Father, we give You thanks for all Your goodness. Lord, we pray for the ministry of the Spirit in the hearts of us, everyone in this room, that we would, in this moment, renew our trust in the Lord Jesus and in our good Father who always provides for us. Lord, we thank You for the body of Christ, for the love we share, for the liberation of this good news. Help us to reflect this sacrificial love because we trust in You. Thank You, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.